I'm Alex Stone, former military service member and law enforcement officer. Now CEO of Echelon Protected Services, one of the fastest growing private security firms on the West Coast. And this is Ride Along. Where our guests and I witness firsthand the issues affecting our community. I believe our proven method of enacting meaningful change through compassion and understanding is the best way to make our streets a safer place and truly achieve security through community. I'm Alan Clausen. I'm editor and publisher of the Northwest Examiner newspaper. We're here today for a ride along with Pacific Echelon Security Services in Portland, Oregon. Your, the editing for editing purposes, so you can sync up the the, okay. the uh, audio and the video later. All right. So, well, let's just walk and talk. So, a lot of the work we do is with the houseless population, mm-hmm. which is probably one of the reasons you're here today. You probably want to ask a lot of questions. Yes. And I thought this would be a good place to start because this is kind of tells my story, mm-hmm. where I came from. I used to be in law enforcement. I don't know if you've read the news articles. I, I, I believe it was some little place in the Coast Range. Uh, That's right. That's right. Forgetting the town. But. Yeah. I, I signed a non-disclosure, so I'm not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. I've read. I've read yeah. about that. It's in the Oregonian and CNN picked it up. Fox News sure, and sure. New York Daily News. Yeah. Got that. Uh, I was a whistleblower. Right. Yeah. And during that same time, uh, I actually went through a divorce as well, mm-hmm. and I ended up houseless myself. I was homeless. Yeah. And for two years, I slept in my vehicle in this parking lot. In this parking lot. That's okay. why we're here. Yeah, you said yawn. Yeah. Okay, now I get the connection. So I, I was going to show you. Sometimes I would park here where uh-huh. that van is, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, the reason I chose McDonald's is 24 hours a day. Okay. So I felt safe here. Yeah. And they have great internet. Well, I wouldn't have known. <laughs> yeah. The internet's actually amazing here. And uh, I was trying to, uh, you know... I was working security, didn't really know what I was going to do in life, um, and so I ended up here, homeless. And and what what years would this Gosh, have that would have been uh, 17 and 18. 2017 and 18? Yeah. Okay, not long ago. No, 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 not long ago. And I, I survived two winters here with no heat in that vehicle, if you can imagine. In the same vehicle? No, different vehicle. Oh, okay. No, no that's oh, okay. a, that, that vehicle's worth about $150,000. Yeah, you could have sold that and got yourself yeah. a place. Yeah. No, um, when my brother passed away, my brother was in the SEAL teams, and he died on active duty. And uh, there was a van that was given to me out of his trust, okay. out of his estate, right? Uh-huh. And so I lived in that van, um, which is not here today. Yeah. It's a different van. Okay. And uh, when I was here, I was doing security work. And uh, I was starting my company. I really didn't know what I was going to do. I went back to Lewis and Clark, got a master's degree in, in teaching. Uh-huh. Realized I didn't, want, I didn't really want to do teaching. I kind of like security work. Uh-huh. As a uh, police officer, I would moonlight 
okay. to take on security jobs through the, mm -hmm. fr the Fraternal Order of Police. I was on the board of the FOP from Oregon. Okay. We would get jobs, and I would take jobs every now and then. So I, I decided to start a security company. And uh, the first contract I had was the yards at Union Station. Okay. And I would work at the yards, but I would sleep here. And I would, there's a bathroom, I'll show you the bathroom later, but I would go in the bathroom, and that's where I would shower every day. It was in that bathroom. <laughs> okay, so. so you were doing security work there, and yeah. perhaps some other security worker would say, what are you doing here? Correct, <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. No, you have to have some professional courtesy, yeah. maybe. <laughs> and when I was here, see, all these cars that are parked here now, mm -hmm. these were, used to be people that did long-haul trucking for the place next door. Okay. And that's pretty much ceased to exist. This is all pretty much houses, folks. Like that RV right there. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's consistently changed over the past, since well, 2017. So five, six years. Yeah, I've, I've learned that there's a camper or van on a curb where there aren't homes, for instance. Yeah. There's probably homeless people. Almost always. Yeah. That it, it's some type of, or illicit activity. Um, a lot of prostitution, a lot of drug dealing will happen, will take place in an RV. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's not a mobile vehicle, so as a law enforcement person, the mobile vehicle exception to search that vehicle, right, okay. doesn't exist because it, did, it didn't, it wasn't moving when you saw it. Yeah. And so a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of people even in shelters, because they can get conjugal visits in a shelter, mm -hmm. so there's no sex allowed in shelters. Mm -hmm. So they have to use tents or RVs. Okay. So you see a lot of that. That's, it's just uh -huh. pretty common practice. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you think these things through, you can, it makes sense, though, if you're a normal person, you don't go through those processes to figure out yeah. how do their lives fit together. Yeah. I, one of the reasons I think I chose McDonald's was when I was a kid, I was also homeless. Yeah, you told me about yeah. that. And in fact, though, I think when I, inter I did the story with you, I said you were homeless after coming here in 2009, so I had the wrong era. Correct, yes. <laughs> That's fine. You know, news is, news is a, everything in life is about trajectories. Uh -huh. You try to get as close as you can to the truth, uh -huh. and so it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah some, some, sometimes uh, you, 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 you're right think that you don't ask the questions at the time because you don't know later yeah. you might need the detail. Yeah. But I remember when I make a mistake. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Yeah, mistakes always hurt. Even though we're walking around right now, you're here to interview me. Right. I mean, it's part of the so, big the big process. I want yeah. to know what goes on in our neighborhood and the people and companies, organizations that yeah. are players that are, that make things happen or are important to the community. Okay. So that's that's my interest in you and your work, and. Okay. I do it in pieces. Not everything I do is, I mean, I'm not taking notes here today, but building relationships, yeah. and building sources is really the key to doing a good, okay. reliable news. Do you want to go look and talk to some folks? Do you want to ask me questions here? Do we can we can roll out and meet up with some of the echelon yeah. people and the loving one another people? Yeah, let's do that. All right, let's go. We'll go do that. Yeah.
Say hi to dispatch. So this, when we took this property over, major chronic issue. Uh, there's a guy who lives across the street. I mean, he was stabbed right here in the back. In the middle of the day. Stabbed right here. And so constantly fighting, drug dealing, guns, shootouts. Shoot, so there's a shootout in this store right here. Um, and then, of course, that little area right there. Mm -hmm. That's perfect for our seating and loitering. That always a chronic issue, and you know we finally had to build those relationships and, tell, and get get it in the mind of people. Hey. Okay. <laughs> Whew, dark in here. So we'll we'll grab a case of water. Okay. Hey, I, I'm just saying hi. Hi. Good to see you, Shay. So this is our dispatch area. Okay. So it's really usually really quiet in here because they need to be able to concentrate and focus mm -hmm. when they're running dispatch. Um, and then we have a kitchen or break room. This this flag is uh, in honor of my brother. He died in 2017, and the uh, parks department decommissioned a flag that was that used to fly over the USS Arizona Memorial. Oh. And so this is the flag. Oh. Yeah. He was stationed out of Hawaii at the time. So that's the biggest one I've seen. Yeah, it's a pretty big flag. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have any when we, when we bought this unit, I looked at this wall and I said, I finally have a place to put this dang thing. <laughs> big huge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so not much really going on here. Like I said, we t tend to be in the field. We tend to do most of our reporting in the field. We want people to be in the field engaging because community engagement is what leads to transformation. Mm -hmm. And this is more of a dispatch office. Good times. So, you know, officer shows up to work. He has to grab a radio and he grabs a tote. All right, the radio is, is well, how we all communicate to each other. Mm -hmm. So we're going to walk back to the yard. Okay. So most properties uh, have like emergency codes for law enforcement or yeah. fire to get in and out. And they typically have like a 10 code or 12 code, which are codes that are used by law enforcement. And so that's what I just did. I didn't need the key. Let's see this. Yeah. So this was my shower. This is the oh. room that I showered in for two years when I was homeless, uh, living out of my van. Okay. Showered from the sink. Yeah. Showered from the sink. Very humbling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very humbling. I've, I've, I've been in some public restrooms where people were, yeah. you know, bathing or whatever. So, yeah, it's a, it's a grim situation. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. When uh, most people that are homeless, they have no sense of worth, no sense of agency, mm -hmm. right? And so that's part of the reason why we chose to, um, that's part of the reason why we chose you good, Bill. So this is actually a PPB cop break room. Oh, okay. Uh, they break in here. We use it. We use it sometimes as well. You can see all the Portland patrols. Oh. But um, it's very rare. They're so busy. Mm -hmm. We're going code to call to call to call to call. Five years ago, you would see a cop in here a lot, writing reports, mm -hmm. uh, meeting with new recruits. But it, you just don't see them in here anymore. I think it's because they're just so busy. 
they don't even have time to be in here. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of sad. Yeah. They used to help out a little bit with the with you know having law enforcement on site. Sure. And then this is our comms room. Right? So officers come and they grab a tote. These are our totes. Uh-huh. So every officer carries a tote. These are probably the totes that need to be refilled. Yeah. Hygiene kits, toothbrushes, deodorant. Yeah. Um, all kinds of clothes. And uh, Officer Burr, who I think she doesn't work today, she comes in and she fills these up twice a week. Okay. And, um, yeah, some water, um, ready-made meals. That looks better than an MRE. (laughs) So oranges, socks. Obviously, socks is really important uh, during the cold weather. It's getting warmer, so a lot more cooling towels, a lot more more water that we can give out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got a radio. Oh. Mm. Cool. All right. Now we have a radio, we can take calls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. 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 You tell them fucking, you tell them motherfuckers to be on my shit, okay? I will, okay. Tell them I'm playing, bro. I'm gonna go tell them my number. You tell them right now, if I would yeah. shoot them, I'll probably try to lock on my door. So I won't have to fucking shoot nobody, bro. I didn't molest and kill my kids. Their father did. Now they're paying everybody my money, because, so I won't find love or job, money, nothing. That's right. They kill me with all my witchcraft and yeah. shit. Okay. Tell them to bring it on! I will. I've been trained for lifetimes for this shit right here. This spiritual warfare. I got you, you back. Let them know I've been trained for lifetimes. Yeah, I got you. Time to go on my shit oh. now! Time to go on You're my good. shit now! Be careful. 701, Cruz, can you hear me? Yeah, this is be on the news! Y'all will be back! This is be on the news! I've already seen it! I'm very clairvoyant and clairaudience. I hear demons. I see spirits. I hear you see shit before even fucking happen. Is this on the news? Uh, yes, put it on like the news, bro. Because like God already years. showed me. Uh-huh. It's gonna be on the news. And so I'm gonna go tell these apartments is gonna be on the fucking news. I'm gonna go see if they actually had. Because I'm gonna make it happen, bro. Uh-huh. I got my own movement. What's up, man? You might not can see these motherfuckers, but they right here with me. Come on, Big Mike. What was that word you used? She's in meta... Meth psychosis. Believe that! Meth psychosis. Meth psychosis. So when you you have a break from reality, but the break isn't a mental health problem, it's not common. She doesn't have a mental illness. I've known her for three years. Her Uh daughter used to live here. Uh And her daughter was sexually abused by her husband. We had to move her three times because the husband kept finding out where she was. Yes. I think he got locked back up. Um, but I've never seen her like that ever, so that I'm concerned. And she's lost about 40 pounds of weight. Wow. So in this morning. Oh, oh, oh. She just.
did her head, but she just went down. Uh, I, I guess she must have tripped. I think so. I don't know yeah. what. But. Okay. I really think that lady should have probably seen a, uh, an ambulance. I think she hit her head. She, she went down fast and hard, so. She did. And your head accelerates when you do that. So like I was saying in the car, observing report doesn't work, right? And pretending to be law enforcement doesn't work either because even though security and law enforcement have similar goals, they're actually completely diametrically opposed to each other, right? Mm -hmm. Law enforcement is over here trying to get people in jail mm -hmm. that do need to act, yeah. do need to arrest, right? And on the right side, you have you have security that is really trying to protect people, protect people's rights, protect people's property. Mm -hmm. So it's more like a civil rights organization yeah. versus law enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. So Reed and I said, hey, how can we maximize the dynamic that currently exists in the private security market? How can we make that the best possible scenario? And we decided to go with like basically overseas operations model where you work with nonprofits and you maximize community engagement. Mm -hmm. So much so that criminal elements do not want to even be in the area, right? Mm -hmm. And so you overemphasize community engagement. Everything that we do is about community engagement, mm -hmm. right? Saying hi to the businesses, always being out in public, helping out with nonprofits. Like that's why we do the Blanche House. Mm -hmm. when they do, we wanted, we want people to see us there, and we want to know everyone's name. Well, if they're giving out three meals a day, free meals, that's where everyone's going, right? Having conversations during that meal time, we're gonna find out who the drug dealers are. Mm -hmm. We're gonna find out who's who's uh, you know. Who's been hitting who? Who's been trying to take over this block? You get all the information. Mm -hmm. Getting that human intelligence. So we're gonna we're gonna hook up with Spencer and Terrence here. Okay. You're you're describing things that somebody must have thought of before you, right? Did you read, or how did you put this together? I worked overseas in Ethiopia, you know, northern Somalia, these areas, Eritrea, and uh, I saw. There's so much criminal activity, but when the when the UN backed up with security, you know, and international bodies would go in to do community engagement, so irrigation projects, these things, the criminal element would stay out of that region. And so this is it's, it's just the perfect model. You come in, you bring the nonprofits, and you make all the other private industry people and help engage that model. And when you ha when you're out here doing that that work, when you're out here, you're more eyes, you're witnesses. You put a bunch of witnesses among criminals. Those criminals are afraid to commit crimes because you have built-in witnesses, mm -hmm. right? It's like the civil rights movement. How did civil rights change America by being on the street, by owning space outside, and say we're going to control the space, we're going to violate these unjust laws in mm -hmm. your space to prove mm -hmm. to you that at any moment we have the numbers to bring about transformation. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you know, when, when, they when they show the pictures of the dogs and the fire hoses, 
it's such evil and it's apparent it's in your face it's palpable it's on tv you see evil for what it is and it makes the people that that want to commit that evil afraid to do it again because yes. there's witnesses there's people that can see what's going on so when we're out here engaging the community ms-13 18th streeters rolling 60s they're afraid to come and engage in activities because we're out here owning the streets it's like a civil rights protest right we're, but we're protesting against crime you mentioned the yeah. names of gangs that are in portland yes right they're, yeah. they're right here i did I, I've heard you mention those names, but I don't know them. Normal people don't know the, right, those yeah. names. Yeah. Ten years ago, there, there were no nationally affiliated street gangs in Oregon. How many years ago? Just ten years ago. Just a decade ago. That means that these local cliques, these local gangs, were not paying national dues to gangs outside of Oregon. Okay. So you have Gypsy Jokers, yeah. which is like the biker gang. They control, mm -hmm. they have like gangs underneath them. Right, prison gangs, street gangs that run drugs for them. But you didn't have a national organization. So like if someone says, hey, I'm a blood or I'm a crit, that chapter wasn't paying dues to a chapter down in LA okay. to claim that. And okay. they didn't have, they weren't receiving drugs and authority and monies to grow that organization here. Okay. They were just claiming to be crips. But now, I see. now you go to St. John's, every, every five to 10 blocks in St. John's, you see a giant 18. Because the 18th Streeters from California moved up here and claimed that entire territory. That is their territory. Okay. Yeah, it's a level uh, yeah. hierarchy here. Complete hierarchy. Yeah. I tell this to people all the time. You know, or Portland used to be a village, and it's graduated to become a major city. And part of that becoming a major city is you have true criminal elements: Armenians, Romani, Russians, Chinese triads, Gulf Cartel, Sinaloa Cartel. You have real criminal elements that are involved that have come here to make money and they've invested a lot of money and time here and they're going to make their return and they're not going to leave till they get that money mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i've thought of even people who you know fly a sign at the freeway that's part of a, an operation because that space is rented in some way if anybody if you or i wanted to claim it there'd be someone coming along to enforce it and say no you're not entitled to it. so yeah. that says there's this is an organization that has different levels and there's apparently enough money being made yeah. that way to pay others to give you the your franchise if you will yeah to get franchised out exactly yeah, yeah. we've seen u-hauls u-haul trucks drive through old town mm -hmm. and take open up the back at like 4 or 5 in the morning, go and grab a tent, they grab a trap tent, they throw it on the curb, and they grab a guy from the back and they say, you're going to be in this tent, here's your dope, sell the dope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You all trust. And that, that Dispersing now, tents. And we go around trying to clean up a few tents, but not yeah. as many as they're putting out. Correct. Yeah. And it's not even about cleaning up the tents, it's about giving people hope, a sense of self-agency, a sense of self-worth, it's about going to someone to say, hey, when you were in second grade and you were in class and your homeroom teacher asked you to come up and tell the class what you wanted to be when you grow up, mm -hmm. did you really think that you would write down, I want to be homeless on the streets of Portland? And the heart of every person is a dream to be, to be somewhere better than they are. And the dreams here are drowning. You can ask anyone here, when's the last time you talked to a caseworker? 
when's the last, the last time someone came by your tent to see how you were doing? And they'll say, I've never, no one's ever come by. Two months, that's the average time they'll say. Two months, Alan. Mm -hmm. These people have no self-worth. But two months was the length of what? The last time they, they spoke to a, a case manager or anyone was came by the tent. Okay, yeah. When someone's in their absolute worst point in life, that is when you have to meet them, when they're in crisis. They, they don't have enough self-agency to, to, to even think that they can pack their own bags and go find a place. Mm -hmm. they don't, it doesn't exist within them. You have, to, you have to plant that seed. You have to build the dream in them. Every day you got to come by four or five times and keep watering that dream and feeding that dream. Mm -hmm. And eventually they're going to say, hey, you know what? I'm ready for, this. I'm ready for that shelter. Mm -hmm. I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to talk to my mom. I'm ready to get off the streets. I'm ready to stop you know, engaging in sex work. I'm ready to stop doing drugs. It takes, that, it takes building that relationship over time and, and planting that seed and building that hope, giving them hope, giving them a sense of self-worth. When you go by a tent, you're telling someone, hey, I, st I stopped by where you live to tell you, hey, mm -hmm. how are you doing today? Mm -hmm. And that makes them feel good. It gives them work. It says someone cared enough about me to come check in on me. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to walk two miles or two hours and wait in some line to have some person tell me they're going to take a lunch. Yeah. They, uh, they don't have time for me. To check in and know their name and remember their name. Yeah. yeah. That's what matters. Yeah. Nothing else works. Let's go talk to these guys. Yeah. Hey guys. Hey buddy. Can't say I love you, bro. How you doing? Good. Good to see you. You good? What's up, bro? What's going on? Good, how are you doing? Good, man. Good, good. Hey, Spencer. You know Spencer, Alan, Alan Klaus. Nice to meet you, brother. Nice to meet you. Pleasure. This is Terrence and Alan. Terrence? Yeah, Terrence I've, I've, I've run a photograph of you two in the paper. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. This is the editor-in-chief of the Northwest Examiner. Oh, okay. So they have no idea. We try to make ride-alongs as... We, we don't tell anyone what we're doing. We just kind of ride along and show up. Yeah. Yeah, is that what you guys are doing right now? Yeah. Just right on. Good deal. Yeah. So what's going on? Tell us what's going on. Uh, well, they're getting ready to post this area, so we're just helping people with, uh, he wants to relocate. He doesn't want to go into a shelter. Okay. And he wants to relocate, so we're going to help him. He's going to put stuff in the back of the truck, and we help him go where he, needs, where he wants to go. If he did want to get into a shelter, what beds are available right now? Uh, right now, well, what time is it? Let me see. Uh... 1230. Uh, probably none right now, to be honest with you. So, and why are there no beds available, Spencer? It's because the city doesn't have, they're only allotted about 200 beds. The county has most of the beds. And so we, I work with the fire department to try to get as many people as we can inside. Unfortunately, we're limited. And so, you know, if I call at 930 in the morning, there might be one or two beds available. But if you call after 1230 or 1 o'clock, they're usually all full. Yep. And so... The goal is to eventually work with the county because the county has way more beds than the city does. But you can't take people to the county's shelters now? No, we can't. The county the county reserves all those for their own their own workers. And so we have to go to the parameters of with the city. Yeah. So we are actually trying to work, we're yep. trying to work with the new BHRC to try to get a couple of beds with them as well. And then eventually, hopefully, we can try to work with the county to try to get like 20 or 30 beds. VHRC. The VHRC, the Behavior Health, Behavior Health Resource yes, Center. Yes, I know. Yeah. So yeah. we're working, we're, we're volunteering with them to try to help them as well. And so in return, they're trying to get us just a couple of beds that they have available. So it's it's been a, it's a, almost like a Robin Cobb Peter to pay ball type thing. Yeah. It's like, 
the, and the goal is, you know, as well as a nonprofit, our goal is to put ourselves out of business. That's our goal. If we put ourselves out of business, that means everybody's getting what they want or what they need. Yeah. And so, if we had the resources and the beds, we I could get 15 to 20 a day inside, easy. Depending on the day, when it's really hot, people want to go inside. When it's really cold, people want to go inside. Days like today, people don't mind being outside because it's not too hot, it's not too cold. But um, our goal every day is we're out here on the streets and we contact people every day. So I might contact somebody 30 times and they're good. I, just, I learn them, I, I learn their name, what they need, we contact them, they're like family, right? That 31st time we contact them, they'd be like, Spence, I can't do this anymore, man. I gotta get off the streets. Boom, let's go. But there is a number you can call now and say, right now, do you have a bed or do you not? And you can get Correct. an answer. Correct. Okay, well, I had heard that there wasn't even that centralized information system, but they, they can do that. Yeah, so working with the fire department, the Silva Brothers, you know the Silva Brothers? No. They're, they work for the fire department. When people get posted, the Silva Brothers come out and try to get people into shelters. They come out beforehand, right? So. I call them and go, hey, I have a person that wants to get inside, what can we do? They'll either tell me, hey, we have a bed, we don't have a bed, um, and so then we kind of put them on a little waiting list, so they'll be on a list to be able to get in maybe the next day or the following day. But it's frustrating because now if somebody says, hey, I want to get I want to get into rehab, we can, we can do that. That's available for us, right? We can okay. get them into Hooper Detox or, yeah. or we can get them into uh, um, a, a mental health facility possibly, right? Um, but the beds, like somebody just wants to get off the street, the beds are just not available for us right now. And I didn't know the fire bureau was so directly involved. Oh, they're yeah, the Silver Brothers are amazing. They're amazing. They're they're out here every day like we are, trying to help people. And we have a partnership with them. Okay. And uh, we've been working with them for over a year now, trying to get people inside. Okay. So yeah, yeah. that's good to hear. Yeah, I, I was part of the volunteer effort the last summer to get the. 405 area cleaned up of tents. And then af after that, uh, I know they put up the fencing that ODOT took down. Right. But even that was only a small part of this 405 corridor. The important part is the people, right? Yeah, the tents don't look the best, but at the end of the day, we want to get people inside. How about Bybee Lakes Hope Center? Do you take people there? We do. It's, it's very rare because of their. Uh, their threshold is so high, you have to be clean to go there, and so. Oh, I thought you could go there as you were, and they check you out for a few days. No, no, you okay. have to be clean for over 24 hours before you can go there. Okay. And then they also test when you're there to yeah. make sure you're staying clean. Okay. Uh, Bobby Lakes is phenomenal. I, I love Bobby Lakes. The problem is, is that most people out here aren't. They're not clean. I think that we're. I think it's starting to make a difference. I mean, we're getting people off the streets. When I say we, I mean the community, not just us, the community in general. Um, I think uh, Nate Takara with the fire department, the Silver Brothers, uh, working with the city on this stuff is is making a difference. And so I'm just I'm just happy to be a part of it and, and slowly try to um, okay keep grinding. And, and you work for love one another. I work for loving one another, correct? Good. So great. Nice it's a pleasure to meet you. you. Same here. Yeah, absolutely. Powerful stuff, right? Yeah.
I didn't ask his background, but... Uh, Spencer was in law enforcement for years, and, he, and then he was a mental health therapist okay. at Emanuel. Great background for stuff like this. Yeah. So you know you know how to be safe, but you also know how to help people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a rough area. Yeah. How's it going? Yeah, this is an area I've been by an awful, I mean, almost yeah. daily over the years. What, what, what is the effect when new? Every day. What is the effect when they put new apartment buildings here? Does that civilize the area a little bit, or do well, I would, those aren't terms I would use? But uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, there is a there is the process of gentrification is a real thing, mm-hmm. but uh, no, I don't think it really makes a difference in this area. No, I mean, this is a, this property is owned by ODOT. So this is the mismanagement of government that's caused this problem. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people who hate me for saying that, but I mean, th- what's going on in, in Portland is an urban refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. And we're willing to spend all this money to go to war to fight people who did nothing against us, mm-hmm. you know, to fight illegal wars in Iraq, but we're not willing to spend money to help people that are literally refugees in our own country. Mm-hmm. And so, and they're on, this is private property, I mean, public property. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the security company isn't here. This isn't our contract. Echelon doesn't come here. This is not all nonprofit work. Okay. So, if we're lucky today, there's two people working here today. We're lucky today if we can convince four to six people to get into a shelter. That's a, that's a great day for us. Well, what about the city's new big shelter programs that are supposed to be staff, social workers and all? Is that a system that can help? I think it is, yes. I'm an advocate for larger shelters that are strategically placed in quadrants in the city. I think they have proposed three, but I would, I would do four. Northwest, you know, northeast, southwest, southeast. Mm-hmm. So that way everyone, all the city quadrants are covered and you're not taking the refugees of one area and forcing them into another geographic location. Yeah. We're not just giving people free rides to the east side, yeah. right? Yeah. Or having, you know, cops drop off homeless people in Vancouver, Washington, mm-hmm. which I get reports all the time yeah. that they're always seeing city officials from Portland bringing homeless people over and dropping them off in downtown Vancouver. I get I reports know, like this I all the time. I get that. reports like all the time about this. Well, I, I know that's why Vancouver didn't want to participate in then in the max over the bridge. Correct. <laughs> Not that export homeless. Yeah, and so you know you got you got to take care of your neighborhood problems. So you got to have a large center that are that are geographic, geographically located in these four quadrants, so that you, so that you're not sending people that far away. Mm-hmm. The resources are close. And then you, you also need a, so you have to have a, a, a larger s- s- uh, shelter system, but a decentralized shelter system is what's needed long term. Mm-hmm. So to transition someone that you capture in a larger shelter with wraparound services, let's say you have medical there, you have a pharmacy there, right? Uh, everything you need, yeah. GED, you can go to school, everything, mm-hmm. imagine it all. Like a real, like a real uh, refugee center that we would have for, for Afghans coming here, right? A real refugee center professional and nice 
And then once they have, have you know, acclimated to that lifestyle and they're willing and wanting to transition, then you transition them into a tiny home. You transition them into a house, an apartment. You work on housing while you're there. Yeah, I think that you gotta do that because people here, you're not gonna get them directly. Agree, but it's not like a individual that someone dealt with just shortly ago. Uh, that was our call too. That was our call earlier, the lady. Yeah. If something pops off, we'll go handle that. Okay. So yeah, I mean, Hey, would you mind talking to us for a second? We're just doing a documentary. It's called OPSEC Media Group. We're, we're working with nonprofits right. to show the work that we're doing in downtown. Great. I'd like to see some of it. Well, this is this is it right here. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is the beginning? This is Alan Clausen. He's a, hey. the editor-in-chief of the Northwest Examiner. So I was homeless as a child for about a year, a year and a half with my mom. Lived in Dolphinville, and then as an adult, I lived out of my vehicle at the McDonald's on Eon Avenue for about yeah, two I years. Where, I know where this is. They're on the 30th. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So for between 2016, 17 to 2019, I lived there right. in my car because their internet's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, within uh, <laughs> within 25 feet yeah, of the building. It's, it it's really good, and then yeah. it skips off and bounces off everything. Yeah, and then uh, Xfinity worked really hard to eliminate all the free Wi-Fi downtown by taking out the little bells that were on here so that everyone could have Wi-Fi when they're buzzing through rush hour yeah, traffic. Yeah, yeah. Going into downtown to all the concrete structures and yeah, yeah, yeah. when Halverson Mason built all the bridges over here. Yeah. I'm, so, one, I'm from one of the oldest families here in Portland. Oh, so that's awesome. I became homeless by choice to help others. Oh, that's wonderful. I got hit by a semi on a MLK's birthday, 2018. Mm. I was delivering a pool table up to Spokane, Washington, and hit some bad weather. Mm -hmm. We got turned around because they refused delivery. Well, they had three feet of snow in the driveway and couldn't yeah, get yeah, up yeah. there. So we turned around and came back, ran out of fuel twice. Nobody wants to help anybody. It was right after the uh, big fire in the Buttonolo Falls. Oh, Falls yeah, that's right. that's right. I, uh, I got that. hit by a semi on my way home. Yeah. About uh, Rooster Rock State Park, Mall Market 23. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Heinemann Transport had a delivery driver taking 80,000 pounds of gluten-free oats from Ontario, Canada to Fred Meyer and Safeway Bakery. Mm. She hit me at 70 when she used to oh sleep the wheel and took my 95 Tahoe and sent it. Yeah. Well, sent it westbound. So you must have had a lot of surgeries. No, walked away without a strap. Oh my God. It's a miracle. That's what they I call got, a miracle. I got pictures of it. Post on, post yeah. all pictures of it on Facebook right away. Did uh, four interviews with television crews the next morning. Yeah, that's amazing. And the voice like yours, you could be doing our job. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. And I said, oh yeah, thanks. So you chose. I could, I couldn't get back in the vehicle and drive. I was for a while. PTSD was just fuck. And uh, where I was living after my uh, mm. divorce, I. Couldn't stand uh, abusive family. He got the guy got his fifth DUI and beat up his girlfriend and went to jail and lost the house where I was renting a room. In. So I came downtown to hang out with some friends and yeah. saw that there was a need for someone that could fix stuff, that could provide help and that made me feel better. Yeah. I've got two types of cancer. I was given a short time to live. 
I believe that there was no, no one has an expiration date. So live each day like it's your last. Enjoy it. Help others. Pass on your knowledge. And help somebody. Did you get any treatment for your cancer? I don't want it. Alex Stone here. Welcome to the Ride Along. We have a very special guest today. His name's Alan Clausen. I've known Alan uh, as a uh, an associate, kind of not really a friend, but someone in the media here in Portland, Oregon. He's kind of a famous guy. Alan was the founder of Northwest Examiner. Northwest Examiner is a a very popular uh, periodical newspaper here in the Portland area, and uh, he is currently still the editor in chief. And he's, he's actually here to interview me, so I'm the subject of the interview today. Alan, do you want to introduce yourself? Say hi. Uh, thanks, Alex. Yes, I've been in the uh, Northwest Portland neighborhood uh, since the early 1980s. In 1986, I started the Examiner and trying to live and understand this neighborhood and put that into journalism and in, in, into articles that would look deeply at what's going on. And the longer I do this, the more deeply I I'm interested in looking. What makes things click? Mm -hmm. What makes them break down? And that's what's put me in touch with, with Alex and his work, for sure. Yeah. That's amazing, you know. So many people don't really dedicate their entire life to one craft. And, uh, you know, Alan's kind of done that. He's dedicated his life to the discovery of truth here in the Portland area. And I, I know that a, a lot of people that I respect consider you a, a very uh, important person and so 
I'm really going to, th- rather than just keep asking you questions, I'm going to hand it over to you since you're the real journalist here and I'm going to have you ask me some questions. So, Well, I, I, I guess that's fair enough. <clears throat> After you've been reporting for a long time and writing editorials on it, I get used to making my own statements <laughs> pretty much, but learning usually begins with a question <laughs> as opposed to, Posing mm, your own yeah. uh, your own assumptions to it. Very true. So I'm I'm fascinated how you have looked at a problem that has confounded people in cities across America, but maybe none more than in Portland, a place mm. with great quality of life that has been slipping through our fingers through the problems of crime, homelessness, disorder, and just community breakdown. And in a short time, you've come with an analysis and a program that's been different than the status quo. Yeah, it has been. And, um, you know, I really attribute that to my background in, in nonprofit work. And we kind of discussed this during the ride along today. Uh, my background, even though I've, I have been in law enforcement and I, I have uh, served in the Army, my background is really nonprofit work. I've been doing that since I was 19 years old. Uh, my My you know, the strongest uh, mentor that I've had in my life, Jim Harrington, was in that world. And, you know, I really respected what he was doing. And I kind of dove in head first. And so when I was transitioning out of the military and law enforcement and starting the security company, I really looked, it was a deep dive. I, I, I dove down deep and I stayed down long. And I quickly realized there had to be a real solution to this. And the solution had to involve community it had it had to involve the role community plays in keeping itself safe so not just law enforcement and not just not just one particular segment of society playing that role but there has to be a way to engage a larger portion of community including property owners management companies uh, small businesses uh, journalists even and how do we how do we how do we get to a level of engagement that makes criminal elements un unsafe, making them feel as if this is not a good business opportunity. There's too many eyes on the streets. There's too many people watching me. I, I would be better served, and my the money I'm going to invest in this venture would be better served if I just take that money somewhere else. And so that's kind of the the what what we went with. Yeah, it's all about community but community alone wasn't able to solve this problem. We, we, we've yeah. had, Portland has had many active neighborhood associations, perhaps none more active than the Pearl District Neighborhood Association, and yet their extraordinary volunteer efforts finally you know, reached their limits. There's, there's also a place for a professional organization or else you wouldn't be here, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. It's true. It, engagement alone is not the key. It's strategic engagement. And it's, you know, thankfully, and I feel very honored, there's been a lot of important people both in city government, county government, and um, and in the corporate structures that have, have secretly and, and, and publicly came alongside me and said, what you're doing is the right thing. It's going to take us a while to catch up to you. But we want you to keep doing it. We believe in you. We know that this is the right thing. And those dollars have been able to come in, and we've been able to expand our program. 
And I think that the areas that we're in are safer. I think that that ultimately it, it is going to take a more robust and and uh, more strategic plan, both on the part of government and also, um, uh, you know, private parties like corporations. But yeah, I, I think that um, community engagement when you're strategic and you're doing things and you and you're doing them for the purpose of creating space that is uninviting to criminal elements, you win every time. You win every time. And this, you know, in the in the fifties and the forties after World War II, we we just called this nation building. And uh, I think that there's a sense that in America, we stop nation building within our own nation. We've we've given up on urban centers. We've given up on the homeless. We, we that kind of JFK era of volunteerism has deteriorated. It's eroded, and I think that people, for what re, for whatever reason, are there's been a cultural shift away from strategic community engagement, and there's been a a a lack of desire to want to work together to solve problems. Yeah, the, the, the Portland situation, as I've seen it in past decades, <clears throat> concerning crime, you know, lack, lack of safety, has been, are you pro-police or anti-police? Yeah. Yes, that, yes. That was the breakdown. Yeah. And we had a city commissioner yeah. who made the point that we need fewer police, defund the police, because, yeah. as she said, uh, police don't make you safe. The community makes you safe. And yet that approach, uh, at least under, under her leadership, went nowhere. But still this question, pro or anti-police, never seems satisfying to me. E either you're a cheerleader for the police and you forgive their offenses, excesses, or you're anti-police and you I, maybe turn over or you, you, you trust that uh, people on the fringes of society will follow the rules and, and, and make you safe if only no one would harass them. And neither of those choices seem good. I think critically at, at the very heart of what you're talking about is that there's been a sense of rapid polarization. Yes, There's rapid polarization. And I think that that's just one segment of it. I, I think that that, that segment, the, you know, the pro-police uh, or anti-police Again, that's just a symptom of this larger polarization where people no longer feel connected to each other in the sense that we're one community. People are subdivided, balkanized into subgroups and subcultures, and we no longer see each other as neighbors. Like, you, you no longer see your whole community as your neighborhood. You're seeing your smaller areas, your smaller subgroups. And this, this, this I think, is part of the symptom or the systemic problem that le that is leading to the lack of desire to engage. There just seems to be a sense of disengagement at such a, uh, a, a endemic level. I, I, you know, and I don't think every city is going through this, but especially Portland. Portland is definitely going through this. When when good citizens cannot own, be part of their community, feel safe in it, and find businesses and services all around them, but, but feel f fearful they step back, mm. you know, and, and the retreat, uh, I think, as you've said before, when, when you abandon the public spaces, 
nothing good happens. That's right. That's right. It's like civil rights movement. If you want to own the space, you have to be in the space. You have to have a, a dream and a vision for that space, and you have to own it. People have to own that space. If you don't, criminals will come in and own that space. Mm -hmm. The answer in, in liberal Portland often has been that the answer to everything is more tolerance, that we must put up with, okay, that looks a little, you know, <clears throat> shady dirty whatever but we need you know we need to put up with it and, and until our whole community seems unacceptable too dangerous or whatever and some some problems cannot be solved by simply tolerating everything yeah they're they're you know and we, i talk about this a lot with with a lot of my friends it it just seems like that this sense of tolerance is almost an extreme form of libertarianism. It's an anything goes type of, mm -hmm. of I, I, idea. And no one can truly believe that that's going to be good for, for you know, the general public or the general welfare, this type of anything goes policy. You know, I mean, at some point, we have to have a street where there's no feces, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that should be a goal. If I if I if I was in public sanitation, right? One of my goals would be let's have a street with no you know needles and no urine and no feces. These this would be a good goal for public sanitation, mm -hmm. right? But this this idea of tolerance, it's this hyper libertarianism. I think that it's destroying it's destroying our culture. It really is. Mm -hmm. I I and it makes no sense to me because I don't think that people in their own policies, in their own life, I don't think that people are treating themselves this way. I, th I see that they're very responsible people in Portland. There's people that have limits and boundaries on themselves. Very responsible people, very, very nice people. But when it comes to other people, there's this, you just have to give so much freedoms. Mm -hmm. And it, I, it makes no sense to me. Where, where, where do you, where is that coming from? Yeah. On where? Where is that coming from, Alan? <laughs> well, it, <laughs> right? it, it, it's certainly an extreme form of liberalism. You know, and, and liberals, as the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt said, you know, operate on, on like two main value systems. And, and, and it has to do hmm. with uh, uh, justice and, 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 and fairness. Or no, I, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> it would be equality and fairness. Th those are the concepts. And... And the conservatives recognize those things, but they balance them with, I think, four other values. I probably forget them, but it has to do with uh, loyalty, authority, hmm. um, um, sanctity, which is something like religious, but ba basically the concept that some things are just inexplicably offensive like feces on the sidewalk. You, know, yeah, you, you can't yeah, define, yes. it, define it, but you know yeah. it's wrong when you see it. Um, at any rate, that, it, a wider uh, breadth of values. But if the only prism that you can look at activities through is, you know, does, is it equal for everyone? You know, and is, is, is there their fairness? Um, you can't deal with breakdowns in the system. And uh, I thought that was... Uh, useful to see why maybe we, we often can't talk about the same things or why yes. discussions get so limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm also wondering, have we reached a point where we cannot have livable, safe communities without private security? Is, is that our future, or how do you see the, your, this role in Portland or in, in Portland, or even, I mean... Uh, That's American a great City. question. Yeah. That's a really good question, Alan. And I think that, so the way I look at safety is that safety has, a, 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 you know, it spans many sectors. You have fire, right? You have EMT, mm-hmm. corrections. Mm-hmm. You have 911 centers like BOEC, like bureaus of emergency services and communications, these things. And then you have law enforcement. And so the interesting, about law, the interesting thing about law enforcement is that law enforcement is really the only one of those, including corrections, that derives its authority from the Constitution, right, from the executive powers portion of the Constitution. And it exists essentially, law enforcement exists essentially to violate people's rights in such a way that's ethical, legal, and moral, right, in order to conduct investigations. So when I was in law enforcement, if I had to, you know, conduct a traffic stop, I'm violating that Fifth Amendment because I believe they broke a law. We have to investigate that. If, let's say I smell alcohol emitting from the vehicle, uh, sounds like an alcoholic beverage, that might end up in a, into a search. The search might end up into a series of questions, part of that investigation, which could then lead to a detention. The detention could end up into an arrest, and then you actually finally detain them in jail. And, you know, so you're, 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 kindly, you're kind of like, based on probable cause and investigation, you're going up this letter of, of escalation where people's rights are being more and more violated legally, because you want to keep the public safe. You don't want you don't want this person to drive home and kill teenagers in a vehicle because they're intoxicated. Right? And so what we have here in Oregon is a unique situation in that all that authority, all the authority from that constitution from the executive powers only goes to the government. So it's not like other states where they grant private companies the right of policing like Disneyland. Mm-hmm. They say, "Hey, Disneyland should have their own police department." Well, that's crazy. Why would we give Disneyland a police department? That makes no sense, right? Well, in Oregon, they don't do that. But in order to guarantee that that private policing doesn't happen in the future, we have to have a robust private security program. Because private security, whether people believe it or not, is actually on the other side of the pendulum of law enforcement. People who are, I would say, ill-informed or misguided, they assume that private security and law enforcement are identical and they call it private policing. But private policing, again, is really when you're giving the right of what a government has to a private institution, right? And then you're granting them authority in the public space to do something about it. A public company or a private company, like a corporation, having the right to arrest someone. Why would a corporation need a right to arrest you, Alan? Corporations should not be arresting people, right? The government, that's the government's job, right? And so in order to make sure that private pol- there isn't a rise of the private police system, we have to have a robust private security. Robust private security, unlike law enforcement, is not an agent of the government. It is an agent of the free citizen. That liberal citizen who has freedom and their own personhood and own rights because they're a human. And so private security exists to protect human rights. It ex- ex- I appreciate that. It comes to another question. It, yeah. it exists for those who can hire private security. 
Correct. And, and so we do have parts of Portland that will never, and the Pearl District is one of the most prosperous and most, you know, the, the first one to step forward with such a bold effort to underwrite private security. Mm -hmm. But what about the stricken areas of the city that also can't put two dimes together to pay for private security? That's, I'm so glad you asked this question, Alan. M the majority of the private security that we offer actually goes to these types of communities because the people who own the, 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 the housing, right. For, for income restricted housing or government assisted housing, right. The people who own that are usually almost always private companies or public private partnerships. Right. So in, 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 in Portland, you have home forward, which is kind of like uh, public housing, but uh, not just home forward, but there are other companies where people, if you, if you have a Section 8 voucher, you can go and get into another property that's income restricted, and you get funds that help you afford that housing to make it affordable housing. And so those apartment units, those spaces, is actually where I started this model. I started this model primarily in a, a multifamily residential apartment complex located in the central district. And it was the highest call volume multifamily residential property for the Portland police. They were having dozens of, of calls. Um, and one of the first weeks I worked there, someone actually got stabbed with a katana sword in the lobby of the, this apartment mm -hmm. complex. And we were talking about this on the ride along. And so that, it, that, that apartment complex, 70% of the people that live there are poor people. They're income-restricted people receiving funds from the state in order to gain access to this affordable housing. And so what did I do when I went there? We cleaned that place up. We stopped the people pimping uh, in the hallways. We stopped the drug dealing. And so private security can work and can serve the poor because there's a symbiotic relationship between the landowner who doesn't really want to own a slum. They don't want to own a slum because slums don't make as much money as well-run properties mm -hmm. because a slum won't have is like a 97, 98% um, rate of occupancy. Whereas a slum, a slum will have maybe an 85% occupancy. So if you have a murder in a unit, that unit's not going to be occupied for months. So you're losing all that income. So a safe and livable neighborhood is actually the best thing. And so when we can, we can when I can go to these wealthier landowners and say, Hey, I can clean up this property and make it, make it, make it, and this property will actually make you money. If, if you join in this neighborhood security plan and you let us help you make this property better for everybody. And they all love it because it really does work for everybody. It really does. Yeah. How have you worked with other Portland bureaus and, and departments? I've heard it said that all, almost all city departments their work is made more complicated, difficult because of our chronic problems of homeless camping, crimes, and, and, and drugs. So yeah. <laughs> in a way, right? it, yeah. it's not just private security and or the police. It's other city departments. It is. Tell yeah. me more. So I, I, and I'm not a specialist when it comes to the uh, structures of the Portland government. And it's changing next, like next year. Where I think we're going to have like 24 commissioners instead of six. Uh, 12. 12. So, yeah, something crazy. So um, I don't understand. I know that they all get bureaus, and those bureaus are managed. 
and they're not managed by people who've actually been in that profession. Uh, they're managed by people that were elected. So, the, so I, I don't really understand the, the, the system of governance. And I will say this, I've lived in other cities. I'm from Houston, Texas. And, and this, the, the, the system of governance in Portland is unique. <laughs> it's a unique form of governance. I will say there is no executive. Uh, the mayor essentially is just an extra vote and they run a board. They run a bureau like, like everybody else. Um, they get a, I think they're part of the decision-making process of where those bureaus are assigned but there's no guarantee that you know those bureaus are going to stay in any one person's hand. They can they switch very often. Every two years, I think they're switching hands. They they can. The the mayor calls the shot on that, but they, he yeah. can he can change uh, bureau assignments rapidly or let them go for a full for four years. And yeah, it 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 it's been a problem. But whatever it has been, it's on its way out because this. New charter reform proposal is coming, which the council member they will be city council members. They will not be many mayors. We'll have centralized yeah, yeah. administration. So yeah, I guess currently it's still balkanized, where they they have their own little fiefdoms. They control these bureaus, and um, they can you can have two people on city council that don't like each other or the, the city commission running their own bureaus, and because of personality conflicts, you know even though they're they're all struggling with one issue. There could be no communication. Yeah, or, or you know, yeah. one, one one bureau that has a minor role in a, in a broader program can yeah. pull the plug and says, "Okay, none of you can play because I won't give this exactly e- yeah. essential element to it." Yeah. But anyway, not just the police bureau. I understand the fire bureau. Yeah, too. fire bureau is great. Yeah, the fire bureau. You know, um, their the fire bureau has done a fantastic job. They're critically understaffed, equally to law enforcement. And you know, there's there's not a lot they can do about it. Their their budget has historically gone down. Their every you know, at, with the rate of increase of the budget, the rate of increase actually has been much lower um, for the fire budget. And so, where whereas law enforcement or the the police bureau, they have all this money to to hire and you know have all these new police officers on board, the fire department's lo- actually losing spots. And they're the ones that I think are taking the the brunt of the of the um, uh, force when it comes to having to deal with the chronic issues of houselessness, the campfires, the building fires because of campfires, the deaths, the overdoses, the medical calls, the mental illness calls, the hey someone's in meth psychosis who we you know we saw earlier today. Person has been completely normal. Most of the time, and today this person was obviously in some type of drug-induced psychosis. And so these they're taking all these calls because law enforcement does, doesn't have time. They're, law enforcement, because they're critically under, understaffed, they're just going call to call to call to call. And the fire department's performed extremely well. They're doing the best they can. But, you know, they can't go out there and actually just patrol. They have to sit and wait. Um, because they need to take a bunch of resources to one place. It's not just a, a police officer who's really taking their authority. One police officer, and you have the authority to manage a scene. But for a, a critical incident, for someone that's sick, you know, one sick person could require five or six people, two or three to work on them, maybe have a critical wound. Then you got to have someone drive the ambulance. And so they need four or five people at each call, whereas law enforcement needs like, one or two sometimes. And so it's very, very difficult. They've done a great job. Um, I recently met with someone in the fire bureau. I'm not going to mention their name. And we, we spoke for about three hours and, you know, 
they're doing an amazing job. I, I, I don't want to get too down. I, I, I feel uncomfortable talking about the bureaus and their assignments because, again, I'm, I'm not a specialist in the government, and I don't know what roles they can play, but, yeah. It would seem the stage that you're at now with, with Echelon and the Northwoods Conservancy is like putting out the fires. The most serious problems have to be addressed so we can begin to make um, community space free for community. That's right. Now, That's right. Now, I would expect in time, maybe a couple, three years, that, that there's going to be a transition. The, the, the worst safety problems, the, the worst you know, domination of public space that's going to be cleared up. So do you work your way out of a job, or what further steps can you see that you could play towards keeping Portland safe and livable? That's an excellent question. I guess that's why you're the journalist. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> it is possible I work myself out of a job. That is a common dynamic in the security industry. When you do such a great job and people feel safe and secure, they no longer think they need security. I, I actually don't think that's the case for Portland, unfortunately. I, I don't think that's the case. Um, people that I spoke to in the police bureau and other agencies, they believe, as, as do I, that this is a generational crime wave, that what we're experiencing here in Portland is something that's that's was going to happen, right? Just like in the 90s, we had a generational crime wave. Crime, like everything, is cyclical, right? And in, in Oregon, when you add on all of the unique characteristics of Oregon based on new legislation and new laws, um, Measure 110, the decriminalization of narcotics, Right. No. When you decriminalize narcotics, you don't have a lot of canines, police canines, making those pretext stops, those drug stops. Because um, a, a canine uh, can't determine if it's a little bit of meth or a pound of meth in that vehicle, and so you have issues with this. So, or because of this, Oregon has become a haven for drugs and for criminal organizations to move drugs to other states and other locations. Right, because they're less likely to get stopped. The lack of critical infrastructure and resources essentially did away with the traffic enforcement team for more than a year, the police bureau. So, you know, if you're, I drive, I drive home on the five at the end of the day, and there are people in HOV lane every day that are just one person. And I haven't seen any, I haven't seen a police officer, I've not seen a, a traffic stop on the five in three years. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the five, Interstate Five. We call it the five here, and I'm on the five every day. And so traffic stops aren't happening, right? And criminals know traffic stops aren't happening because they're smart, they're intelligent, and they have billions of dollars invested in their in their industry, billions. And yeah, I mean, yeah. So no, I, I think that I think I I think my role is here. It's going to be a long term role, and I think that you know when. Private security, at the end of the day, is almost a hardening measure on the first tier where you're protecting properties, right, and then individuals. And then the second tier with that community engagement, you're, you're, holding, you're holding public space safe by making so many eyeballs available at any moment in that space that criminals know, well, if I go down there and do X, Y, and Z, someone's going to see me. Someone's going to see my car. Someone's going to see my... Uh, license plate and and so that community engagement keeps kind of keeps out that network 
And so as long as I think I'm doing what I'm doing and I, we keep doing a good job, I imagine that this, yeah, we'll be fine for the next three to five years. Okay, once, yeah. once you've fixed all the public spaces so people are free and happy to be having events and, you know, the, 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 the yeah. dangerous people have, have, uh, have vanished, Portland still isn't going to be fixed until our businesses can open yes. and work. And, and yeah. maybe that's beyond your, your realm, but how, how might you be able to influence our look at this picture? How, how do we get retail and restaurants back like they were thriving again? So that's a great question. So I own commercial property, and I've owned commercial property before. And I believe that, that commercial investment comes from emotional investment. Uh, I think that people that are into people, you know, people with a lot of money that invest into areas, they want to see community engagement and they want to see that community emotionally invested in a, in that geographic location. And so the, you know, there's this, there's a, a company called Kimco, not a client. Um, they're a publicly, they're the first vertically integrated real estate investment trust that was publicly traded Kimco properties. And they invest in suburban space. Because there was such a investment in suburbs. Why was there an investment in that outer ring of real estate? Because of the 1990s. What happened in the 1990s? A generational crime wave. Generational crime wave led to flight towards the suburbs, which then that emotional investment, right, in that outer ring of suburban real estate then led to commercial investment, right? And so that's how it's always going to flow. So as long as if we can, if we can take over the public space, we can get people to re-engage in the urban areas, then people who have the money will see this community engagement and they'll say, it's time to invest again because they know the market always goes back up, right? And so, and they know that the other people are watching and waiting. And as soon as it gets better, everyone's going to want to invest at the same time. And then that, then that's, this is why we have bubbles in real estate, right? Because emotional investment, crime waves, criminal waves, COVID, COVID taking away our third space, which is dis, di, your people are divesting emotionally from space. All of these play a, play a factor, right? For real estate um, and investors. And I do believe that once this crime wave does start to slow down in the next three to five years, you'll see a radical investment into Portland and you'll then have another boom period. Well, it'll be great. It'll be, I think it'll be like it was like 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. yeah, you've, safe. you've mentioned that you haven't always been treated kindly by the news media. And um, sometimes that is because you pose a threat to somebody, some sector, whatever. What, what, do you see do you do you see your program your efforts as threatening some elements of the status quo um can you imagine <laughs> Let, let's all imagine <laughs> like spongebob so <clears throat> yeah we can use our imaginations so you know i i do believe that change is hard i've experienced deep and traumatic change in my own life in a span of three years, I lost four family members that were very, I was very close with my uncle, my brother, my father, and my grandfather. And that change changed me. 
And I decided not to become more bitter. I, beca- I try to live through that and let that, let that kind of wash over me and make me a better person. And yeah, I mean, the, the rise of the public safety sector, not only physical security, but just artificial intelligence security, cyber security, right? Um, all levels of security. I mean, it is a growing industry. And it's going to continue to be a growing industry because it's so heavily integrated into innovation and technology. And a lot of people are not ready for that. You know, Portland, unlike a lot of cities, Portland Portland has a, a statute that disallows the use of facial recognition. Right? They do not allow facial recognition to be used. And there's great arguments for that, by the way. And I'm not I'm not pro or anti, but there are instances where if people's faces might have been uploaded to systems, then mass shootings might not happen, right? And so we have to struggle with how do we, how do we use private security not only to save one person but to better society as a whole, right? And again, I want to reiterate, private security should operate like a civil rights organization. We're talking about private security and we're not talking about the power of the government to oppress and to enslave, right? Private security is the, the entity that's going to protect the individual person's rights to freedom of speech, right? Um, there was an incident where there was an incident where one of my property owners, they have a Planned Parenthood in their, in their building and there were girls going there to have that procedure performed. And there were people there that wanted to stop them that day. And it wasn't the police that made sure that those women had access to reproductive rights. It was private security, right? Mm-hmm. And so private security is about protecting the individual's liberties and rights. It's about protecting your right to be able to freely move about the country, your Fifth Amendment right. Well, if you're too scared to leave your house and get in your car and drive down the street to get your medication, because there's criminals that stand outside the Safeway, your rights are being violated. And they're being, really, they're being violated by the ineptitude of the government structures that are disallowing you to express your rights. Uh, Is this kind of thinking moving or influencing people in law enforcement? Are are you reaching, or is, is this message reaching people who say, yeah, there, there's another way to look at our job. It's yes. not just a matter of getting arrests. We like this manner of treating yes. citizens as human beings and, and helping. Yeah. yeah, in fact, you know, in, in, in law enforcement, law enforcement's a very unique industry. It typically travels from the East Coast to the West Coast. And so in New York City, after 9-11, they immediately started an office of liaison to private security because even though private security are not the first responders, they're most always the first reporters. They're the ones that are almost always present when the crime is about to occur. They're typically the person getting uh, interviewed by law enforcement uh, for that suspect information. And so as first reporters, they're part of the critical infrastructure of the safety of every, uh, every city across America. And people, I, I'm not from, I'm not from here. And so I try not to judge other sectors in other states, but there is a sense that 
the West Coast has always kind of been a little bit lagging when it comes to understanding the importance of integrating critical infrastructures to uh, into public safety that will then provide a better product for public safety and livability for all. And part of that is is that there's no there's no liaison. The, in the DA's office, there isn't a specific person that's a liaison. Now, my company alone has identified uh, multiple murder suspects in the past, what, 15, 16 months? But there's no direct liaison. If, if, if private security witnesses a major crime and the police are too busy, if I have to get on 411 or get on non-emergency and wait 47 minutes... Most security guards can't do that. They can't do that because they're earning not earning a, a, a very high wage. Well, they're earning a high wage for me. <laughs> but in other companies, they're barely living, getting a livable wage. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if, if they have to wait on 911 and still yet no one comes, this is, this is a problem. And so building these infrastructures, I think that there are people in government that are realizing, hey, we need to, inclu- we need a more, a more systemic, more um, structured, strategic plan in place because it's catching Portland off guard. Mm-hmm. Portland is lacking in uh, everyone out there in the country. I don't who've not, who have not been here. Portland is lacking critical infrastructure and especially human resources in the public safety sectors. It is almost crippling uh, Portland. According to FBI statistics per capita about the Portland, Oregon is only the force strength of Portland, Oregon is only about 35%. They're two thirds under the FBI recommended per capita patrol rate for a major city. Two thirds. They have one third the staff they actually should have. So cities like Houston and Memphis and uh, Washington, D.C. and Miami, these cities are like actually staffed at the correct levels. And Portland is two thirds below that level. Per capita. I, I've yeah. heard too much about this, comparing the number of police officers to population, and if you're below that ratio, you know, then you have too few, and you can use that as an argument for the taxpayers to dig deeper. It seems like it, it's really about the assignment and, and the problem. That is, can you respond to serious emergencies in a reasonable amount of time? Can you address, I'm, I'm talking about policing here, Yeah. and it, it, Portlanders are fed up not because of the number of patrol officers per se, but when they call for help, they can't get anyone to respond. Correct. And that's Correct. how they measure whether we're getting enough police. Yeah, I agree. And I, no one is saying that we need, l- let me be clear. I believe in community transformation. I believe community transformation comes from personal transformation. <clears throat> I believe that police are a critical structure in order in order. For, we, for us to have a viable society to live in that's strong and safe. But at the end of the day, it is not the structure, right? It's a structure that takes people that cannot be reformed and t- puts them in a place far, far away so they can't hurt anybody. That's all law enforcement can really do. And that's not very redemptive. It's not very reformative. It's not the, the greatest of answers. But at the end of the day, you know, law enforcement has to exist. And so if we don't have more numbers, we, they, we can't get that response. 
Now, that's not to say that we need patrol officers out patrolling consistently all the time, making stops like the Juliana era of stop and frisk, right? We, we, we want to we protect people's individual rights and liberties, right? But we do, we do need that level of law enforcement for response purposes. And that's, I mean, it's, it, we have to have that. But we, right now, we don't have that. The last time I checked, um, the average response time to a critical incident was 14 minutes in Portland. And the national average is seven and a half. And so we do need more law enforcement. I think that as a community, we need to get together and decide what that's going to look like. I think that we need to decide, you know, do we want people actively patrolling or do we want them like law enforcement, just ready to go in a bill or like, like, like fire and rescue ready to go. And they are just taking calls. And so I think that there is a good balance there because we don't want, we don't, I, de I definitely don't want to be over policed. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, o over the years, you know, e even since my early days in, in Portland, um, th there was grief over the decline, the, the loss of the beat police officer. And, oh, we want beat cops. We want the same cop, and we want them walking. Yeah, our yeah, streets. that community and, officer. And, and, yeah. You know, the, 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 the citizens, the neighborhoods, they've always loved that, and we've, we've only gotten a little sprinkling of it here and there to you know let us know that, mm -hmm. that it might be possible but I'm, I'm i'm wondering you have a background in law enforcement might it be possible that we wouldn't need to have so many responses to calls where you drive <laughs> across the county or whatever the case yeah if, 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 if there were officers on the ground who actually knew what was going on and might have prevented some problems yeah i mean prevention with prevention comes the concern that someone's rights will be violated in an unethical, immoral way. And so, you know, you, you know, law enforcement, I, you know, I tell people this all the time, and this is a very well stated statement. It is the easiest job to get. I mean, it is the hardest job to get and the easiest job to lose. Right? Oh, hardest job to lose. You mean you, I mean, easiest job to lose because yeah. you'd get fired? Yeah. Well, we Only about 20% of law enforcement make it to retirement. One well, there time. are other reasons. Why, I mean, we, we yeah. know so well the cases in Portland where, where serious matters of abuse, where discipline was brought down and it's overturned and the officer has to be brought back no matter what they've done. Correct. I, I get the impression that it would be very hard to get fired and permanently removed. Oh, I'm not saying that people are necessarily fired. I think that pe people, good people, bad people, right? Uh, they just leave. Yeah, okay. I mean, they just get burnt out. I would say that the police unions do make it very hard. And, you know, I was a teamster, mm -hmm. and I was on the board of the Fraternal Order Police here in Oregon. And, um, I mean, you, we try to save people's jobs. As a union, that's what we do. And in a union, that you want to try to save someone's jobs. Um but not, you know, not every police officer is going to make the right decision. And when you're making life or death decisions, that mistake can look, can turn really bad. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the concern when people always say, well, you know, I can't tell you, you know, I go to so many community meetings and there, there's always a segment of that meeting that says, we just need more law enforcement. We just need more cops. That's all we need. They don't know any other options. They don't know any other options because they're hi it's, there's hyper polarization of the uh, populace. 
that can't they can't th- see that third way. They see option one. They that they're stuck in that false dichotomy, yeah. right? Yeah. When I was yeah. younger, they would say, you know, you don't like cops. You know, if you you have a break in, call a hippie. And it was funny. Uh, it wasn't so funny for hippies, but <laughs> the, the the idea. Alan, was I have a feeling that you were a hippie. Is well, that is that? Yeah, I, I guess I still have a beard, don't I? Yeah. I don't have that much <laughs> hair anymore. But, um, yeah, the the idea that there was no, there were no other options. You either take policing as it is, or there was no other way Correct. to find yes. safety. Yeah. And, and and that that you know the the the, the false choice and anymore the I false think choice. modern yeah. you know American cities have, have shown that we need more options. You need more options and. I could talk about this forever and I, we're probably going to have to wrap up. We can bring Alan back, but what I've always advocated is multidisciplinary teams, MDTs, law enforcement. You know, they had the 1972 O'Connor v. Donaldson decision dropped on them. We're no longer going to have state institutions. It's now the job of law enforcement to manage mental health crises in America. We don't have healthcare for the poorest of the poor healthcare that allows access to actual mental health. You know, you look at you look at a lot of these recent school shootings, and a lot of the people these these kids engaged in this activity had no mental health history, contacted by law enforcement multiple times, but yet no referrals to mental health. And there's been a desert of mental health for a for a two generations since the '70s, since this ruling, and we have to reverse that. We have to reverse that. We need we need that that's critical infrastructure. Um, can law enforcement do it? Yeah, but we're going to have to hire different types of law enforcement to do that. We're going to have to hire people that want to be physicians assistants and police officers. We're going to have to hire nurses that want to be physicians assistants and police officers. We're going to have to hire officers that are, that have an MSW masters of social work. We're going to have to rethink law enforcement and go multidisciplinary teams. You know, when I talked about hiring a lot more police officers, we hire a lot more police officers not so they can go out and patrol, but so that they can be freed up to do things other than just enforcement. Those community programs, handing out a bicycle helmet, right? These community programs, those, the, the, the cities that have these great, robust community programs, when you see these police officers playing basketball with kids and doing mentorship programs, that's because they have enough police officers to patrol. So they can afford to do all those community engagement activities. But when you're constantly running at a critical infrastructure, a low infrastructure, that community engagement will never happen from law enforcement. They can't afford to not with a, when you have a duty to act and to stop someone from being murdered, you don't have time to take off to hand out bicycle helmets, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the problem folks. (laughs) That's the problem here with Alan Clausen, Northwest examiner. Uh, a pillar of the community, uh, a man of principle, a man that cares, and uh, thank you for coming in today. Well, thank you, I appreciate Alex. It, Alex. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah.